came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when he came, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them. And he said, what then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Please use it again uh, this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning's topic is authority. Have you ever been forced to do something you didn't want to do by someone in authority over you? You had to do it, no matter how much you hated it or couldn't see any point in it whatsoever. And all the kids here say, yep, sure have, every day. <laughs> well, I remember a lot of those feelings growing up, but you'll find out, kids especially, that much of it was for your own good and protection. But as adults, we might feel the same way about paying what we consider high taxes or things we're told to do at work by bosses we don't like. They're in authority over us. And we have to do it, and it irritates us or even enrages us sometimes. Or maybe things like eminent domain. Have you heard of that? eminent domain. It's when federal, state, or local government takes your property for public use, but without your consent. They have to pay you for it, but you still have no say in it. We owned a house in South Carolina, and one day got a letter from the city that said they were going to build a bypass through the city and they'd narrowed it down to three locations. And if they chose number two, it's going through our backyard. And they were warning us that if that happened, they were gonna take our house, meaning they were gonna knock it down. And we said, it's not even five years old, what do you mean? And they said, sorry, eminent domain. You have no choice, we are in authority over you. Turned out they chose another location for the freeway, thankfully. Then we moved up here after retirement into a 55-plus uh, mobile home community, and we wanted a carport for our two vehicles to keep the sap off of them in the summer and the snow in the winter, and we were ready to order it. But the park manager said, no, that will put a structure within 20 feet of the road, so no go. He said, when we signed the contract, we acknowledged their authority. End of story, no carport. 
far worse than that, far worse than just a carport. Say the federal government decides that something you consider morally and biblically evil is, in their view, good, and you must accept it, and you must pay for it with your taxes, and you must affirm it. All of this is to say authority is a powerful thing. It combines two things. One is the ability to do anything you want, as well as the right to do anything you want. And when it's absolute and unilateral, it is unstoppable. And sometimes, if, if you're subject to this kind of power, you can do things like move or change jobs or schools, but absolute moral authority cannot be avoided. It's all important. And when the person or the group with absolute authority is good, that's wonderful and comforting and safe. But when they're evil, it's devastating. In today's passage, two conflicting kingdoms collide head on. It's been building for the last three years of Jesus' public ministry, but really it, it goes all the way back to the fall of man in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden when it tells us that God put enmity, which is bitterness and rivalry, between Satan and Jesus, meaning Eve's offspring is what's said, but it means it's referring to Jesus. And that's been building for thousands of years and now comes to a public confrontation in our text. In Genesis 3, God said Satan would bruise Jesus' heel. That's going to happen in a few days, prefiguring the cross. And, and God also said that Jesus would crush Satan's head which means to deal him a mortal wound, and that would happen in three more days after that on Resurrection Sunday. So this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel has been building, and it has now reached a boiling point. He has demonstrated time and again that he is the Messiah, and many times he's exposed them already as false teachers and hypocrites. King Jesus has sovereign, absolute authority, and the leaders are not used to that. They, the, the leaders, always quoted other rabbis for their authority, but Jesus quotes himself. His ministry has already shown that he has the authority to forgive sins and to save and authority to heal the sick and even the dying, and authority over hell and demons, holding the very keys to life and death. And now, most recently, he has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, and just yesterday, he has cleansed the temple of the cheating Merchants selling these outrageously priced animals for sacrifice that were required. And now, in our text, he's coming every day to the temple to teach and preach right on their home turf. And he's inserting himself directly into their center of business and finance and influence. He's taking his rightful place in his father's house, as he said he would, right here on the same spot when he was 12. And the crowds can't get enough of him. And it sends the leaders into a rage that can no longer be contained. Enough is enough. This unschooled, untrained, inexperienced, uncredentialed, uncouth, rebel, outsider, carpenter must go, no matter what it takes, and it looks like it will take no less than murder. So looking more closely at the text, in verse 1 it says, one day, 
Jesus was teaching and preaching, and that day was probably Tuesday, although John MacArthur and maybe one or two others think it was Wednesday. But this could be his last official day at work, according to Alistair Begg. Need to make a side comment here. Um, stay here. <laughs> make a side comment. Uh, we preachers from time to time uh, mention names of commentators and scholars. Um, if you take one's pers one person's work without mentioning their name and present it as your own, that's plagiarism. If you take lots of people's names, that's research. <laughs> so, all right. Anyway, Alistair Begg <laughs> thinks this was his last official day at work. It's definitely his last parable, the parable of the tenants. And after these last few teachings that we're going to look at in for a week or two or more, after that, the trial process starts and its public ministry is over. I retired five years ago, and my last day in the church office was one of eating cake and packing up the last few books and hearing very kind people saying the things that they were supposed to say. But Jesus tells us here, did what he always did, teaching and preaching the gospel, sharing good news about forgiven sin and about righteousness, righteousness given unearned by faith alone. He's walking around in the temple area and speaking here to that group and moving over there and speaking to them um, one commentator, more research, said that the whole area of the temple complex was the size of four football fields. So he's moving around, teaching and preaching, and then this Sanhedrin delegation made of three groups finds him, and the phrase where it says, came up to him, means came upon him directly and possibly even rudely, or as we would say today, they got in his face. He's preaching and teaching, and they muscle in, and what are you doing? And they interrupt him in the middle of his teaching because they were on a mission. There, it tells us there were three parts of the delegation. The chief priests were right at the highest echelon of authority, meaning the chief priest himself was there, as well as past chief priests, the top dogs as it were. And then it says scribes, and they were the theologians and the keepers of doctrine and creeds and all the supporting documents that went along with that. And then it says the elders, who were the temple administrative leaders primarily. The closest thing, you just saw an installation here, uh, the closest thing, that was a commission of presbytery. That's probably the closest thing we would have to this that happened here, a presbytery commission. A committee, not a commission, but a committee can go out and gather information and report back to presbytery, but they can't act. A commission that you saw here is much more powerful and can act on the spot for the entire body of the presbytery with the full weight and authority. So here is Jesus, who has never quoted the first one of these people and was not ordained by them, acting like he's in charge. Jesus didn't ask anyone if it was okay to make a whip out of cords and turn over tables and run thieves out of the temple, who obviously had the permission and blessing of the Sanhedrin. He didn't ask for their permission to get the donkey. And he said, he told the disciples, if the owners want to know who or why, tell them the Lord needs it. And apparently, those owners of the donkey knew what authority was behind it because they gave it to him. So this was outrageous behavior to the leaders because Jesus was treating them as if their entire system didn't 
exist. Jesus is saying you don't matter even if you think you do. So the true prophet, capital P, prophet of God, comes into his own temple to teach because it's time for real truth of the real gospel to be proclaimed as the real good news that it is. The same thing will continue tomorrow, Thursday, as it progresses. So after so long, it is finally time for the true Passover lamb to be sacrificed. It's interesting, isn't it, that this three-part Sanhedrin group usually was at odds with each other. They were often fighting back and forth, but here they've united for one cause, he dies. It's true, isn't it? All false religions teach diametrically, things diametrically opposed to each other, but in one sense, they're all unified, remove Christ from the landscape. So they ask him about his authority to do these things. So these things most recently will, of course, be riding in on the donkey, cleansing the temple, but maybe most arrogantly of all, presenting himself as the good news of the gospel, teaching and preaching. And Jesus, here you are in the temple of all places doing this. If you want to spread your lies out in the countryside among ignorant, unschooled farmers, that's bad enough, but in the temple itself? So their question is by what authority, by whose authority do you do this? Who do you think you are? And Jesus responds in a way that they themselves conducted in their own teaching, and that's answering a question with a question. It's very typical rabbinical teaching style. He's not being evasive at all. He's helping the student think more deeply about what they're asking. Often another question in place of a pat answer is more helpful, isn't it? Because it makes the student think through what's behind their own question, and maybe even answer it themselves. And when you come up with an answer more deeply that way, it teaches you more than if you had just transferred the answer from the teacher's notes to your notes. But this question from Jesus nailed them because they already knew exactly where his authority came from. They just didn't accept it. They were not asking the question to gain knowledge they didn't yet have. No, they were gathering evidence for a charge of blasphemy so they could legally have him put to death. And they weren't, were not trying to arrest him right now, right here in front of everyone. They're going to arrest him and try him in the cover of darkness with an illegitimate process Later, based on the lies of their bought and paid for inside informant Judas. Now, today's purpose was to catch him publicly blaspheming. So his question back to them surprises in them and destroys their process. And he's doing it using one of their own rabbinical teaching techniques. He doesn't answer, and he instead exposes their deep hypocrisy. He says, I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine. Fair enough. I promise, he says, I will completely divulge if you'll do the same, okay? John's baptism, from heaven or from men? From God or not from God? What say you? What kind of baptism was it? Was it a mere Jewish rite? Or was it a way to true repentance? And involved in the question, it's not just the baptism itself, but John's whole ministry of preparing the way for me, Jesus is saying, pointing to me as the Passover lamb, deferring to me as the true Messiah of God. Was that whole deal from heaven and therefore God? Or was it something cooked up by men for other reasons? Now, the leaders are truly stuck now. 
So in verse 5, they say, um, can you uh, hang on a sec? We need to go have a short uh, focus group meeting. <clears throat> Jesus apparently says, sure, I'll wait. I'm not going anywhere. I would have loved to had, wouldn't you love to have <clears throat> video and audio of that little meeting? They get off in the corner and the first one says, well, that went well. And then Jehoshaphat or somebody says, I told you that was a stupid question about authority. And then rebuttal to that is, okay, Einstein, what's your great idea now? Sometimes in a classroom, you've probably experienced this, a student will say, sorry, professor, um, this is probably a stupid question, but, and many good teachers will say, no, no, go ahead, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Well, apparently there is, after all. They asked the Son of God where he got his authority. Well, joking aside, they, they discussed their problem. And I think they really, really, really wanted just off the top to say for men because, at least on the surface, that would expose John and Jesus as frauds. That would be their first choice, but they have to think it all the way through. And they know for men probably won't work, and of course... If they admit it's from God, they're exposed as frauds because Jesus would have been right to totally and resoundingly thoroughly expose their whole system. So if, if we say John is right and he was from God, Jesus' obvious question to us is going to be, well, then why on earth would you oppose God if it was from God? Why didn't you believe John and be baptized? Any of you been baptized with, from John, by John? Didn't think so. Why aren't you thrilled that I cleaned the temple of all those thieves and robbers? Jesus would say, John agrees with me. They were selling junk, literally and spiritually. And so if John is from God, you should have been glad I cleansed that. So the leaders in their group say, well, we sure can't have that scenario. Let's go back. Let's try again with our first choice from men, and let's try that again. Let's see. If we say John wasn't from God and it was man-made, then wow, the people will stone us because they know the truth. Because Jesus could then follow up with, you're afraid the people will stone you? Stone you for what? Blasphemy, of course. The people all know for good reasons it was from God, and if we say it's not from God when it was from God, then we will be seen guilty of blaspheming God and his messenger. And that's the whole reason we're here, to pin that on Jesus, not us. So that will take a nasty little turn which we can't survive. And they further reason in their little group that they, the people will probably cite Passages like Exodus 17.4 and Numbers 14.10, we won't read and look at those, but those were two examples where people who said they were prophets of God were not prophets of God and should be stoned. That's in the Old Testament. And they reason that the people here will think that's us. If we say John's ministry wasn't from God, they will have biblical precedent to stone us. So the leaders were truly stuck. And they can't tell the truth in either case. And so they focus grouped and they did what they'd seen on the evening news so often, public leaders under oath saying they couldn't recall, don't remember, don't know about that. Today we call it pleading the fifth. The Fifth Amendment says you don't have to answer a question if your answer could lead to you incriminating yourself. That law would say others need to do to be the ones who are incriminating you. So get, get the significance of what's going on here. Here in our text, we have the ultimate sources of truth and guidance in all matters of religion, the spiritual leaders of Israel. These are the people to whom honest seekers of truth go with their deepest questions about God and life to get answered in their most fragile moments, we have that group of people, the leaders, choosing to blatantly, 
lie and mislead everyone under their charge just so they don't lose control and power. No wonder Jesus calls them a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, dead on the inside. Here we have the high priest himself being Sergeant Schultz. Hogan's Heroes, anyone remember that? The older ones among you will. It's, uh, he says, I know nothing. I see, if kids, you don't know who that is, ask your parents or grandparents later. They'll tell you about Hogan's Heroes. Jesus is saying, if you don't even know where authority even comes from, then you can't possibly have it yourself. If you can't tell the difference between a prophet and a mere man, how can you make a call about the Son of God when he's right in front of you? So they're caught. They come back and tell Jesus they don't know. They say, we're agnostics. We don't know. And Jesus said to them, then I will give you the same response you gave me. I won't answer your question either. And you think about it, this is a chilling moment in history. Jesus says, I have no more to say to you. We're done. This is the pearls before swine principle, Matthew 7, 6. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That means don't give or offer something valuable to someone who doesn't understand its value. It's really a humorous image. Lots of the parables are. Trying to get them to see the beauty of the gospel of grace is like going into a pigsty with a $500,000 pearl necklace kneeling in the muck and the mire and the refuse and excrement and saying, how about these beauties? What do you think, pigs? Aren't they beautiful? <laughs> Don't you see these are the highest rated triple A ultra luster surface blemish free grunt, grunt, oink, oink. You want to wear them to the slopping tonight? You'll look great. Silly images aside, it's true, isn't it, that generally speaking, God doesn't give more insight and revelation, small r, revelation, if you haven't acted on what he's already given. And no, it isn't a one-for-one one thing where he cuts you off immediately if you don't obey perfectly. Rather, it's a principle or a process, meaning... We should all be working on and applying and trying to practice and live out what we're learning. But if we get tired of it, if we sort of give up on that, we shouldn't be surprised that he stops revealing more spiritual truth to us by his spirit through the word. And we all have periods, time to time, of what the Puritans call the dark night of the soul. Maybe you've heard of that. Things are tough and dry spiritually. It happens. But this principle, positively put, would be he keeps giving to those who want more. When you learn a principle, there's a sense in which you're in a better position to learn other truths that you couldn't have seen from where you were before. We don't get everything all at once. It's, it, it's a process. So here, the leaders of Israel are spitting in Jesus' face, and he says, I have no more to say to you. Shortly, we'll be told in Luke 23 that when standing before Herod, same thing, Jesus answered him nothing. God will not strive with man forever. There are limits to his mercy and grace. There was a time as the disciple, when the disciples were told to shake the dust off their feet, off their sandals, and move on to the next house when there was no response at the first one. Now, some of us might be getting nervous 
about now. Have I done that? Is that me, Lord? Are you going to cut me off? Well, probably a two-part answer. There's probably not, but maybe. Probably not means you're here at worship regularly. You are most of the time availing yourselves of the means of grace, and there's at least five means of grace, worship, word, sacraments, prayer, fellowship. These are not the people to whom Jesus is saying, no more for you. So probably not referring to you, but maybe. Why didn't you stop with probably not? Why did you have to say maybe? Well, as Jack Miller, the Sonship guy, says, you know, it wouldn't hurt your soul one bit at all to do some self-examination, humble yourself, and confess your many ongoing sins, and see if you've slipped into becoming a closet Pharisee. You know Alcoholics Anonymous's famous greeting to someone who gives up and gives their story. Uh, Hi, my name's Bill. I'm a recovering alcoholic. And they say, hi, Bill. Thinking is, whether you've quit drinking or not, you always have the heart and mind of an alcoholic. Well, in the same sense, this is Christians saying, hi, my name's Dave, and I'm a recovering Pharisee. Hi, Dave, says all the fellow struggling sinners. So it wouldn't hurt our little souls at all from time to time to ask, have I drifted? Maybe I've lost some of the early warmth and zeal. So probably not like the leaders, but maybe a little comparative. Is that me? I'm sorry. Not sure what's going on. All right. That was loose. Okay, let's try that. I was saying, being cut off by Jesus saying, um, no more for you, probably not for you, but maybe. There's always room for self-examination. Anyway, this, this ends the first half of the text, which was the confrontation And now we turn to the last half, which is Jesus' condemnation. Nope, that wasn't it. Of them. He has been dealing directly with the leaders because they interrupted him. And now he turns back to the crowd and he gives his last parable of the Bible. He has said he wouldn't answer the leaders, but now he gives the answer to the people. This would be in keeping with that principle before that To the more open and accepting ones, he gives more truth, but not to the closed and arrogant. And remember, the leaders are still mingled in with the people, even though he has said no more for you. This last parable of Jesus has almost no mystery or hidden images in it. Earlier parables, yes, they were sometimes cryptic and they needed interpreting, but not this one, his last one. He's at the end now. No need to hide anything more. Many times in the past, Jesus did hold back, and he told the disciples don't to wait and not say too much because time wasn't right, but it's upon him now. Everyone knew exactly who and what was being referred to in this parable. The vineyard was Israel. We get that from Isaiah 5. God was the owner, the landowner. The tenants were the leaders, standing right in front of them. The servants that were sent were the prophets. And the beloved son was, of course, Jesus. And it was common for a landowner to rent to contract farmers and be gone all year until harvest and then Very normal for him to show up and receive what was agreed upon. And typically found out that was 25 to 40 percent of the crop given to the owner to keep for himself and family or to sell. 
and we know sharecropping on rented land is common today as well. So in the parable, so far, everything's normal and expected. But at verse 10, it becomes shocking, even illegal and criminal what happens. Matthew's account adds more detail that there were some others that were sent besides these mentioned, and they were, some of them were killed too. The people are horrified at this turn of events when Jesus says, the landowner in verse 13 says, what shall I do? The implication is clear to them. Are you kidding? What do you mean, what should you do? Isn't it obvious? But the landowner quickly says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll give him the proper respect and treatment. Maybe the servants that I sent were thought of like slaves, and sometimes they were thought of as animals. So maybe, maybe they'll wake up, come to their senses when they see my son, is the thinking. <clears throat> but apparently before the son even has a chance, they kill him. This is premeditated murder. Now likely when they saw it was the son and not the owner himself, which they kind of expected, <clears throat> they assume, well, maybe the owner has died, and sin is, so the son came, and he's the only heir, so if we kill him, the way will be clear for us to own, keep the vineyard. Now, this story, as given by Jesus, is intended to generate outrage, and it does. You can see it and hear it here. Jesus asked the crowd at the end of verse 15, what the owner should do. In the parable, the owner said, what should I do? Now Jesus asked the crowd, what should that owner do since the tenants are wrong and he is not dead and he's there? What should he do? He's sort of saying, complete this parable for me, please. And they did in Matthew's account where they said, Matthew says that the people said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will turn it over to real tenants to others. Which is what Jesus ends up saying in this parable. And so now, the full implications of the parable seem to strike home to the people. If the people knew what would happen to the tenants, why, when Jesus gives the right answer in verse 16, why do they now say, surely not? Shouldn't they have agreed with Jesus when he said the tenant should be killed? And shouldn't they have said, surely, yes, definitely, yes, kill them? But oddly, they say, surely not. So it appears they have really been drawn into Jesus' uh, intentions in this parable, meaning that Jesus has connected all the dots for them, because that really did happen in Israel's history equating it to what the leaders are doing right now, what they did in the past. And so, by this parable, Jesus is also laying it all on them, not just their leaders, on them as the people of Israel. The prophets of God were actually beaten and rejected and killed by the people. Hebrews 11:37. speaking of the prophets, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, and they were killed with a sword. Tradition tells us that Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. Point is, here all in a moment, it seems the parable has had its effect and the people see themselves historically united with their pastors and leaders as the ones who right now are planning to continue the course of events and kill Jesus, the true son, and they blurt out, no way, surely not. Wait, Jesus, that went too far, what you said. Jesus, if this happens and the tenants are destroyed and the vineyard of Israel is given to others, that will mean the destruction of our whole religious system too. It will be the death and the removal of everything we have been as a people and are now as a nation and ever will be. We take back what we just said, surely not, when we said surely not. 
Now remember, these are the same people who in two days will yell, crucify. They're realizing that what the leaders are trying to do will result in the giving away of Israel to others. And that is exactly what happened. Israel forfeited their position as the true people of God, and it was given to the Gentiles. The parable means either acknowledge Jesus or be cursed. There are no other options. If you reject it, it will be given to someone else, and you will perish. That's important to catch, that last part. If you reject Jesus, it isn't then just a simple matter of God saying, well, okay, um, I tried to persuade you, but you didn't really like my option, so you're free to try the next religious or moral system coming down the pike, uh, something more palatable to you, no harm, no foul, all roads lead to the top of Mount Fuji, right? Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Baha'i, Christianity, all lead to the top. It doesn't matter which path you take, the result's the same. No. Jesus is saying you will be destroyed. Not just you get to go away somewhere else. You will be destroyed like the tenants in the parable and like these leaders standing right beside you. Let's take a big leap into the future. John Lennon was wrong when he sang Imagine. You'll remember these words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. I shared that once with a, a friend in our former church, and he said, well, thanks for ruining my favorite song of all time. <laughs> He said, I guess I never paid attention to it and just sang along. And I said, you're welcome. It needs to be ruined. Its message is blasphemous. No religion, nothing to live or die for. No heaven, no hell, just sky. Back to our story, we see how drastic a position <clears throat> the people have taken by saying, no way, surely not. And this is telling, we know, because... In verse 17, right after that, it says Jesus stares them down. He looks directly at them and says, if surely not is the proper response for the leaders to be thrown out for killing the son, then explain Psalm 118, 22 to me. It's quoted for us there that we saw it earlier. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In the parable of the son, in the parable, the son is still dead, but here Jesus is saying that the psalmist, under inspiration, long ago, has elevated him already to the chief cornerstone, very much alive. The parable ends in a dark place, but Jesus says the parable isn't the end of the story. Remember scripture, Jesus says. Scripture is supremely authoritative. You remember Daniel 2, the dream, when they wouldn't bow down to the image? <clears throat> the dream ends with a stone coming out of nowhere, smashing the idol. Psalm 118 talks about a cornerstone. How do they work, cornerstones? Well, I was just involved with the building of a porch in our neighborhood, well, it was two of us, and I'll admit the other guy was definitely the brains of the outfit, and I did a lot of holding things and driving to the lumberyard and so on. But it's quite true. He came home to me again. If you don't get the foundation right, the structure will be off in every direction. And when the stonemasons of the Bible searched for a cornerstone, the thing to start with, it had to be straight on, on every dimension, flat on the bottom, straight on the sides, level on top. With the neighbor's porch, a few tenths of an inch, and the ground translates to several inches off at the roof. Today it's true you can tweak a little more with wood, but a cornerstone has to be perfect. 
I wonder what the pile of rejected cornerstones looked like. How long it took and how hard it was to find and chisel just the right one. The Sanhedrin looked at Jesus and and they said, you don't fit our system. You are not a good redeemer with your talk of free grace and substitutionary atonement and perfect sacrifices. What do you mean we have to be born again? We have Abraham's blood running in our veins. But listen to Acts 4, 10 and 11. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man, talking about a crippled man, standing before you is well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So by Jesus quoting Psalm 118 to them in this text, after this parable, is saying, the one you rejected is back. Prefiguring the resurrection. He's standing right before you now in his temple, not your temple. He fits the space perfectly. And you are completely and willfully blind to it. As John said last week, last week's sermon, Jesus had to clean the temple of trash and junk because a cornerstone had to be laid there. You can't build a porch starting on a pile of dead leaves and trash. Well, Last verse, verse 18, is final, and it's a threat. It says you better be careful how you engage the stone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. A collision with the stone will destroy you. We say we break commandments. No, you break yourself on the commandments. Isaiah 8:14 says and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jesus, of Jerusalem. Do you see how this works? You trip over it. It stays still and fixed and you are the one that falls by it into powder. It's not in ESV, but other translations add into powder as part of the meaning of we'll crush him. You don't just get up and dust off. You are crushed into powder. 1 Peter 2.8, we saw a, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Came across a uh, rabbinic saying, here here it is, if a stone falls on a pot, it will smash the pot. If a pot falls on a stone, it will smash the pot. The result is the same, either way the pot loses. If you have a collision with Jesus in this way, you will be pulverized. Please, I hope no one here is doing that. This is another reason why Jesus wept when he saw Jerusalem, thinking about standing there looking over the city, thinking about how most of them would be crushed. Thinking about the last verse about being crushed, a little story to end with. Um, our daughter Erin has a 100-year-old house in Brighton Heights and has really done amazing things with it, <clears throat> and I'm her handyman. And one project was the three concrete steps out at the street goes from the public sidewalk up to her sidewalk to the porch, and years had taken a toll, and they were crumbling and actually unsafe. And I hadn't done that level of work before, and I kind of hate concrete work. Sorry, I don't know if I told you that. But, um, but she couldn't even get an estimate. So I jumped in. It actually turned out much better than I hoped. 
Uh, I learned a lot, and I went to Home Depot numerous times. In fact, over the few days or almost week that I did it, five different people stopped and tried to hire me. <laughs> That's how bad things have gotten, people trying to hire someone who has never done that kind of work before. Three concrete steps okay, brain surgery, no. Anyway, in the process I learned, here's trying to get to the point, I learned there's a difference Maybe you know this. There's a difference between concrete and cement. And we often use the words interchangeably, but technically, you mix Portland cement with sand and small gravel to make concrete. Portland cement is that gray, finely ground powder. That's what made me think of this. It's the, con <coughs> the consistency of bath talcum powder. It's so finely ground. Our passage ends with verse 18 saying, if the stone of Christ falls on anyone, it will crush him to powder. Can you think of another place in the Old Testament that talks about someone being crushed? Isaiah 53.10 says, yet it was the will of God the Father, the Lord, to crush him, Jesus. He, the Father, has put him, the Son, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper. <clears throat> it was the will of the Father to crush his son. If Jesus is falling on you, crushes you to powder, but it leads to your repentance by his guilt offering in your place, then God will use the crushed powder of Jesus to then turn your life into solid, enduring concrete that lasts not just 100 years, forever. His being crushed saves you from being crushed. And so how thankful we are today for the sovereign and good authority of God to conquer our sin and death with Christ, the cornerstone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the true owner of the vineyard. We see the wonderful son that you sent into the vineyard of our lives to us. And we want to be better tenants. So as best we're able, right now, we latch on to him again. And we throw ourselves fully and freely onto him again by faith this morning. Show us more what that means as we read your word and try again to forsake our sins that so easily entangle. For we ask and pray in the name of the chief cornerstone, Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing, what else? Cornerstone.